And you have your Bibles turned to Mark chapter 10. We'll refer back to the Matthew and Genesis passage as we go forward. If you were here last week, you realize that this is our second week in this passage. The first week we limited our discussion just between the discussion between Jesus and the rich young ruler. And here we're incorporating this follow up dialogue between Jesus and his disciples. I want to let you know that prior to even hearing this sermon. About the rich young ruler and the request made by Jesus of the rich young ruler, someone came to church last week and gave all of their money to Christ Community Church. I mean, as far as I know, they gave all of their accounts, all of their cash, before even hearing the sermon. They left with the clothes on their back and no money. You try to imagine doing something like that. Then you try to imagine who did something like that. And it's not my place to say, but I'll tell you one more thing. They left with the clothes on their back. They left with no money. They left with their dad. You see, the person who came and gave was a child. But do you see see the picture that was happening? He had his dad. He didn't need anything else. He was so free to give everything. In the previous week, the parents had had a discussion with the child and just reinforced, well, this is your money. You can do with it as you want. And they said, well, I would like to give all of it to the church. And so they came. And they offered a tremendous picture here for us. They, they understood something that's so terribly difficult for us to understand and something I think Jesus is desperately trying to get the rich young ruler to see, desperately trying to get the disciples to see, and desperately trying to get us to see, is that everything we really need is going to be provided by our dad, not by our bank account. It's really no surprise, is it, that it was a child? I mean, if you look back just a few verses later in Mark chapter 10, verse 13, how is it that you enter into the kingdom of God? That's the whole discussion for the rich young man. He's coming to Jesus and saying, I feel like I'm missing something. This inheritance of eternal life, this entering into this new and great land, the kingdom of God, I can't seem to get in. How do I get into the kingdom of God? And Jesus had been just been teaching His disciples, you get in by being like a child. Meaning you're completely dependent on God. In order to enter into the kingdom, 
we must understand that everything is provided by the king. If you and I, if the rich young ruler, if the disciples really want to enter into the kingdom of God, what we must understand is that everything is provided by the king. So I want to pick up this dialogue with Jesus about eternal life. And I want to focus our attention on three things. I want to revisit this departure by the rich young ruler. I want to notice the degree of difficulty of entering into the kingdom. And then I want to conclude by a direction for us to look. The, uh, this departure and then the degree of difficulty and then a direction in which we should look. We notice again that the rich young ruler left disheartened. This was a Greek word that means stormy. And so whether his countenance was downcast or, or we might say he left the light of the world and he went into a dark and stormy environment. The, the wealth that had opened all the doors for this man. Doors to the club. Doors to the right schools. Doors to the best jobs. Doors to political power. Doors to the best house in the neighborhood. Or doors to the White House. The wealth that had opened up all these doors for this man now is an insurmountable handicap. The man leaves overcast because what he learns is that his wealth that had opened up so many doors doesn't even budge the door to the kingdom of God. He can't even get it to move a little bit with his wealth. Doors that were flying open for him in his life. He comes with all of his wealth and he can't even get it to move. William Lane in his commentary on the book of Mark says this, Jesus' Jesus's demand is radical in character. He claims the man utterly and completely and orders the removal of every other support which could interfere with unconditional obedience. He orders the removal of every support When you go to a camp, some of these Young Life camps, they have all kinds of sort of wacky things to do with your free time. And one of the things you can do that's sometimes named this is you can uh, go climb up the pamper pole. It's a fairly crude name that I won't go into any description of. But basically, it's a telephone pole. And it's kind of just sitting out there. It's a 30-foot, I guess, telephone pole. Little rings on it. And you climb to the top. And I've done this. And you, you get to the top. And so here's the top of the telephone pole. And they say, okay, Paul, just stand on top of the telephone pole. So I'm thinking, you know, my feet are down there. And so you, you try to get your feet up on the last hand. And you've got your hand up on the top of the pole. And you know, you're, you're doing all you can to try to keep one foot on top of the pole. And then you finally you get your feet both on top of the pole. Some of your feet hanging off of this pole. And you're up there 30 feet and it sways just a little bit. And then you know what they ask you to do? Jump. 
Now you know why it's called the pamper pole. The, the one thing that's holding you up in the air, they're saying, jump off! And that's exactly what Christ is asking this man. You've got one foundation. You've got one support. It's holding, it seems to be holding you up. And he's saying, jump! You see, the unique characteristic about wealth is that it seems to provide such a secure platform in which to work. Because we say, if I just had a, a little bit more wealth, my platform would be a little bit more secure. I could shore some things up. Wealth has the appearance to meet all your needs. And Jesus understands this, so he asks this man to jump off the platform of his security. And for this man, it was impossible. So he walks away sad. Because he left, he left with all the clothes on his back. He left with all of his money. But he left without his dad. And he had some kind of ache that he realized, no matter how much cash I have, no matter how many kids I have, no matter how great my career is, None of those things are ultimately going to be fulfilling. For a short period of time, it feels like they are, but then the platform begins to rattle and shake. And then you go and say, help me! And Christ says, I'm it! Jump off! And the man says, I just can't let go. I can't let go of the platform that is crumbling underneath my feet in order to go for the rock that is Christ." I want to say something to young people. I'm not offending anybody who's old, like if you're 43. I'm just referring to young people that are 15 or 21, 24. I want us to notice this young man. He had all this talent, but very early in his life he got captured by the world. I want us to firmly fix. I want you, young person, I want you to firmly fix in your mind the incredible disappointment that this man has. He's been given everything the world could supply and he leaves in this stormy, downcast countenance. See, you've grown up in a world that screams at you these messages. Safety. Security. I mean, we have something in the government. Homeland security. Benefits. Retirement. And I'm not saying that any of these things are negative. What I am saying is they quickly become platforms in which we build a fortress around and say, as long as I have all of these things, then I'm going to be okay. And they become very difficult to abandon to Christ. So in the midst of your decision making, you're 15 and you're 
thinking about what I want to do, what, what college do I want to go to. You're 21 and you're taking your Christmas break and you're thinking, hey, in four months I'm going to be out of school. And I want to plant in your ears Jesus Christ's call. Jump! Jump before you build this fortress of security and benefits and retirement and safety. That then when He asks you to jump some years later, you just hold on to even though you know it's crumbling. The second thing I want to observe is about this man's departure is the contrast between his countenance and the man who found the great treasure in Matthew 13. The, both have found the same thing. They've both found the door into the kingdom of God. They both depart. And so what's different? The rich young ruler departs, as we know, in sorrow because he can't get his mind and he can't get his hands off of his wealth. And the man who found the treasure departs with joy because he can't get his mind off of heaven. You see what's happened? The, the, the man leaves sorrowful because he's got his mind so wrapped up into this world. And the man who left joyful, he's got his mind so wrapped up in the things of heaven that it puts a perspective on everything that's happening here. And the reason I want to bring this up is because I regularly see and hear about weightiness in your life. Real difficult questions and challenges you have to face every day. Yeah, it's all fine in here, Paul. But as soon as I go out the door, as soon as I enter my house, as soon as I start thinking about this person or my job or this problem, a weight comes on. And I want us to think about this because I observe the culture that that I live in, we all live in, this Christmas season that promises that from every billboard and every magazine and every newspaper stuffed with advertisements saying, you can find it right here. What's the advertisement for one of the shopping places? It's all here. Everything you need is right here. And we get captured by those things thinking, if we just enter into that one store, everything is going to be met. I want us to realize that all the things that we're going to buy for Christmas are on their way to a garage sale. (laughs) Whether it's in a year, or 15 years, or 50 years, or they might be on their way to a college dorm room. Right? Because you put it on the curb and a college student comes by and says, Wow, what a find! They stick it in their dorm room and invite their friends over to look at it. And you think it's going to be joyful and and life-giving. And you're just holding on to it. I want to just spend just a moment trying to encourage and add some fuel to our thinking this Christmas. Pondering the everlasting joy that's available 
for those who know Jesus Christ. Sam Storms has a great sermon on heaven, and I want to take some quotes from it. We must take steps to cultivate cultivate and intensify an ache and a longing for the beauty of the age to come. We must labor to get a sense of the vanity of this world and labor to be much acquainted with heaven. And listen, the blessedness of the beauty of heaven is progressive and incremental and excessively expansive. The happiness of heaven is not like the placid, steady state of a mountain lake where barely a ripple disturbs the tranquility of its water. No, the happiness of heaven is like a surging, swelling wave of the Mississippi at flood stage. With each passing moment there, we find an increase in the level of satisfaction. When we reach heaven, we won't know everything and just say, well, I'm just going to sit here and ponder that. It's increasing. It's exponential. You knowing one more piece of information opens up hundreds of vistas for you to discover in your lifetime, your eternal lifetime. You're going to be given a greater capacity for joy. Your body and my body, we don't have enough capacity for joy. So we have to be restructured so we could absorb more pleasure. And increasing pleasure over the time that we are in heaven. All time. And yet we, we continue to be so focused And I don't want to minimize anyone's problems, but 40 or 60 or 80 years versus eternity. And Paul says this in Philippians 4. You know this verse. Finally, brothers, you know, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is praiseworthy, what does he ask you to do? Think about these things. Get them in your mind. Put those things in your mind, not the things of the world. And in 2 Corinthians 4.16, Therefore, we do not lose heart. How is it that you live in this world and you don't become unwound with the problems that you're encountering? Forget about the problems in other countries. We don't lose heart. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So what do we do? We fix our eyes. We, we, this means we take aim. We're like a, a, a century. We're, we're looking. We're not just looking down here. We're looking out. Not on what is seen, but what is unseen. What is seen is temporary. What is unseen is eternal. You see, it's the cultivation of this thinking. This, this pondering heaven just for a moment that begins to free you from the things of this world. It's when we focus our attention, when we fix our eyes on heaven, it's then you and I are able to get down into the gross depravity that we find in our own hearts and in our city, in our world, without becoming overly discouraged.
And the world understands this concept of fixing your mind on something. You know this from the, from, from the commercialization. If they can put a picture on a screen, and you had no desire for that until you see it all lovely, and then what happens? You begin to think about it. You begin to think about how you would look in that. You begin to imagine yourself. And the advertisers know just as they capture your eye in your mind, you're just one step away from the purchase. In my college dorm room, I think the pizza places did this deliberately. There's 30 rooms in a hallway. 10.30 at night. One person gets a pizza. And that pizza fills up the whole hallway. And so I'm studying calculus. And suddenly what happens? Cheese pizza wafts underneath my door. And I start thinking about, hmm, that crunchy crust. That warm feeling. My favorite topping. Double it. And what happens? Dominoes? I want it less than 30 seconds, not 30 minutes. Right now. Why? Because my mind has been captured by it. And so 30 pizzas are ordered within three seconds of this one being coming down the hall. Because our minds have been captured by it. And this is what Paul's saying. Fix your minds on things of heaven. How often have we fixed our minds on those things versus the things that are down here? And so what consumes our thinking? Is it the things of this world or is it things of heaven? And that's exactly what Jesus is trying to say. Fix your minds on that stuff. I can give all my money away because everything is met by the King. There, there's no way to be a giver and to be a cheerful giver unless you have this in mind. See, because you can sort of grudgingly give what you feel like the Lord has led you to give, but you're not going to be cheerful about it. And the reason you're not going to be cheerful about it, or I wouldn't be cheerful about it, is if our minds are focused on this world. I'm giving away something, and what I'm giving away is, well, that new dress. I'm giving away this vacation. I'm giving away some security. I'm giving away some safety. If you think of it in that way, you're never going to be joyful. You're captured by the things of this world. And the reason I think that's particularly important right now is because if you're a member of Christ Community Church, next month, at the end of the capital campaign, you're going to be asked, and I know you're going to be asked because I'm going to be doing the asking. You're going to be asked to make the single biggest contribution that you've ever made in your lifetime. To the building. And you're going to struggle and I'm going to struggle if we're giving away our retirement. If we're giving away a vacation. But if we're giving to eternal things, do you see how that totally changes our perspective 
on our giving. We can give joyfully. We can come and crack open our piggy bank and say, I've got my dad! I don't need anything else. To enter into the kingdom is a difficult thing. And Jesus calls his disciples to sort of hammer this home to reinforce that entering into the kingdom by yourself is impossible. We see that in this chapter, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And then sort of just to solidify it, he gives this picture. It's it'd be easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle. Some of you may have been around long enough to hear this story of about the eye of the needle being a little small gate. You unpack the camel, then he gets down on his knees. There's no small gate called the eye of the needle in the New Testament. This is a camel. This is the biggest animal in Palestine. Trying to fit through the smallest opening that Jesus can think of at this point. And so the disciples are looking at it and saying, that's impossible. And Jesus is saying, you're right. And in fact, if you look again twice, you have this uh, expression by the disciples. They're amazed and they're then they're exceedingly astonished. I wonder why. I mean, you're a disciple. You're standing there next to Jesus. The rich young ruler comes up and the the man walks away sorrowful. What, What would cause the disciples to be astonished? Here are the ones that I thought of. Maybe they're amazed just like the rich young ruler. They really thought wealth opened doors, and apparently it doesn't. Maybe they're astonished because Jesus didn't go after the man. He didn't go and say, oh, well, you know, it really just means 10%. Let's just start with 10%. I didn't mean all. I mean, golly, you got a lot of things going for you, buddy. You only really missed one on the test. Come on back. He doesn't make any of those compromises. Maybe they're amazed because they thought this buildup of wealth was really a sign of God's blessing. And for this man, it turned out to be an impossible hurdle. Maybe they're amazed because this man with his power and position could have had such an incredible impact for the kingdom. Oh, if we could have just gotten this guy in the door, what a testimony he would have had. What an incredible effect he would have had for us. And yet Jesus lets him slip away. I think they're astonished because they're just remembering that Jesus doesn't see the world the same way the disciples see the world. And they they just never can seem to get their minds wrapped around it. So Peter in verse 26 asks this broader question. Maybe he's sort of fishing for a way to get himself into the kingdom. Who who could be saved? Can anybody be saved? And then Jesus looks at him and says something that none of us are anticipating. We may be familiar with the story, but if we were just reading it through, what would you anticipate Jesus saying at this point? He's asked the rich young ruler to give all he can, to sell his possessions to the poor, to come and follow me. And then Peter says, well, who can be saved? And then Jesus says, what would you anticipate him saying? The people who can enter into the kingdom of heaven are those who give everything away. That might be one anticipation. 
The people who enter into the kingdom of heaven are the poor. Or are the people who follow me? We would have all those, we'd have all kinds of reasons to think those would be what he says. But what does he say? It's impossible for all men, not just the rich, nobody on their own can enter into the kingdom of heaven. The rich young ruler comes looking for something he can do. What can I do? Something he can contribute to the kingdom, to getting into the kingdom, this this new land. And Jesus clearly looks at this man and says the degree of difficulty is impossible. You cannot perform it. In order to enter into the kingdom we must understand that everything is provided by the king. And I want to close with this picture from Genesis 15. What was it that Abraham was wondering about? Am I going to get the land? How can I be sure I'm going to get into the land? And God says, come, let's make a covenant together. So they take these animals and they cut the animals in half. And they lay them somewhat on a little slope. And so the blood is running into the middle. And this is an Old Testament covenant that would say, we're dividing these animals and then you and I, hand in hand or arm in arm, The two people making the commitment to one another to keep the covenant are going to walk in between this bloody path that the animals have now created. And it's as if to say, if you don't keep your side of the covenant, may it be to you as one of these animals. May you be cut in half. May you bleed to death if you don't keep your side of the covenant. But what happens? A darkness comes over Abraham. And he's terrified. Why is Abraham terrified? He knows he can't keep his half. He wants to get into the land, but he knows he can't keep his half. And what happens is remarkable. God alone walks the blood path. As if to say, Abraham, I'm going to keep my half and I'm going to keep your half. In order to enter into the land, the king must provide everything. And so here we are. What are we asking today? What is the rich young ruler asking? I want to get into this new land. I want to get into the kingdom. But I'm not sure how to get in. And Jesus says, it's impossible with you. You can't walk the blood path. But I can. He looks at us and says, I can keep my part and I can keep your part. And so Christ, God, keeps his part. 
And how does he keep your pardon? He bleeds to death. He takes upon himself what we should take upon ourselves because we cannot enter the kingdom on our own. Jesus Christ, his death makes it possible. He turns what's impossible for us into a possibility. And so when he's on the cross and he says, it's finished. What's finished? I've opened up the door for you to come into the kingdom of heaven. I've done it all on my own. All you have to do is like be like a child and just receive. Let's pray. Lord, there are so many pieces that, that could have such a measurable effect on us today. I don't have any doubt that you're calling some people to jump. And whether it's off their wealth or off a relationship or off a dream or off of something else. They're living on a false platform. But we're not just jumping off into nothing. You're going to catch us. And as fearful as that may be, if we're fixed on heaven and not fixed on our platform, but even so, we're just too weak. Our, our knees are too rubbery. We can't get ourselves off the platform that we've built for ourselves. And so, in mercy beyond measure, you have come. You have promised something. You've kept your promise. And you've kept our side of the promise. God, last week, a young child came and displayed what you desperately want to be displayed. That today we can leave with our hand in the hand of our dad. We pray for your help, O oh God. In Jesus' name, amen.